Some call it a miracle cure-all, but the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, says not so fast. It's as dangerous as heroin. Kratom and the battle for control over it. The DEA says that two active components of the plant are the most dangerous, warning the substance can cause hallucinations, psychosis, and but death. the DEA says self-medicating with an unregulated substance is not the solution to pain. This is an addictive substance just like any other drug. And when you start putting these things into your body, you're gonna become addicted. I know that people say, oh, it helps opioid addiction, but it in itself is an opioid. Welcome, I'm Ben Boyce, and this is the Dr. Junkie Show. Today's episode is about set and setting. But more than that, it's about recognizing who we are, who we wanna be, how we want to treat ourselves and others, and then noticing when those things we want to do or be aren't aligning with those things that we're doing or being. With me, this hit home a month or so back with Kratom, a drug I've been taking now for a few years. But before we get into all that, I should remind everybody that one person's experience with a drug is not everyone's experience with that drug. If you gain strength from the descriptions in this episode, then use them. If they don't speak to you or align with your experience, toss them out. But for those of us who have struggled with addiction, or who know someone who struggled with addiction, the more stories about success we can find, the better we tend to do. And that means we all have to get used to being vulnerable and talking about how we got through situations that others are still looking at without hope, unsure if they're even something that can be overcome. That's still the goal of this podcast, hope. The worst thing you can do for someone who's struggling with heroin addiction is to tell them how hard it is to stop using heroin and how they probably won't be able to do it. So take solace, because today's episode is also about how easy it can be to stop using drugs. That is, as long as you're ready to stop using and you want to stop using. That's actually one of the less discussed reasons for always considering set and setting before you use any drug. It isn't just a one-time thing that you never have to consider again. It should be an everyday event, a practice of self-care. Getting drug users on board for their own recovery is the best way, the only way really, to achieve success in recovery, whatever that means for you. And you can only get us users on board once we understand what set and setting are and how they inform our experience in the world all the time, not just once in a while. Now, as always, this is not a medical podcast, and I'm not offering medical advice here. I'm simply sharing my story. I'm not a medical doctor, but I am a doctor of communication, and that means I study how messages are transmitted, how we come to believe things about ourselves and about the world. And what we know about drugs and addiction is usually a product of messages that we've bumped into throughout the years. And that means we usually believe drugs are dangerous and addictive, and that those that use them are bound to struggle throughout their lives. Which brings me to set and setting. Setting is the place where you plan to use your drugs, along with everything that's going on there. As COVID was setting in, many of us learned a new way of understanding the importance of setting when we found ourselves using differently or using different drugs during the lockdown than normal. Setting is important because you always have a different experience on a drug if you're in a room full of people who are yelling at you about how awful you are 
Compared to if you're in a cozy, safe space full of things that you enjoy doing and people who support you, you'll experience a hit of LSD or a handful of mushrooms differently if you consume them at a friend's house with Pink Floyd playing in the background than if you use the same drugs at a Marilyn Manson concert surrounded by strangers. Makes sense, right? If you've ever heard the phrase, you blew my high, that was a response to setting misalignment. But then, some people might really enjoy tripping balls surrounded by strangers at a Marilyn Manson concert. Which brings us to set. Set is you. And this is really important, because unlike setting, which we often think of as constantly changing and always worth thinking about, the illusion of self leaves us rather ignorant of our own changing bodies and personalities. I mean, I feel, for all intents and purposes, exactly like the same person I was in 1998 when I graduated. And I also feel like the same person I was yesterday or last week. Of course, I know logically that's not true. And I can even pinpoint numerous changes in my demeanor, my morals, my enjoyment of particular drugs, the things I find satisfaction in, the risks I'm willing to take for fun. But it's not a natural thing to think about this. And that's a big part of today's episode too. Because as most of you already know, you can check out my episode with Dr. Judith Grizzle if you don't, episode 86. Tolerance and sensitization, hell, addiction itself, they're hardwired into human genetics. We're programmed to become addicted to things and to seek out those addictions. It's not a fluke of human nature, it's a feature. Think about it. You find a substance and you try it. It works to lower your anxiety or to give you a boost of energy or to clear your mind or to amp you up, or to help you rock out at the concert, whatever, it works. So you immediately learn to go back to it. But our brains and bodies evolved to keep us alive. And because of that, our biology recognizes these effective states that come from most drugs as dangerous, rightly so. I mean, opioids are supposed to spike in our bodies when we experience something awesome a natural biological occurrence to mark those memories as safe, enjoyable, and fulfilling, as something we should remember and do again. Cannabinoids in our body are supposed to spike in response to stimuli, as a way to let the firing neuron know, okay, message received, you can calm down now. Other biological reactions, like the amping up that comes with stimulants, they mimic what our bodies do to warn us of danger, or to mark memories as exciting and is therefore much more dangerous and worth watching out for. When we start tinkering with those levels outside of actual stimulus, say by dumping a huge dose into our stomachs as a pill, our body naturally reacts by trying to balance out what it sees as an overproduction of certain chemicals. How else can it keep us alive if, say, a lion crosses our path? It needs to be able to dump oh-shit chemicals into our bloodstream. And if those chemicals are already there, it can't do that. This is why most people who study drugs tend to stick with the simple description that all drugs do is either speed up or slow down processes that are already occurring in the body. That's it. So fast forward the clock, intolerance shows up as our bodies slowly balance out what they view as an imbalance. We might take heroin for six weeks straight, so our body not only stops making natural opioids, but it also ramps up the production of anti-opioids, chemicals meant to remove opioids and endorphins from the bloodstream. And that means two things. One, 
it means we experience less positive effect with the same dose of the drug. And two, it means we experience more downside, like hangovers or other negative effects, because the body's response to the drug doesn't wear off as fast as the drug does. Tolerance usually makes us up our dose, because, remember, we learned on day one that this thing is a successful way to treat our anxiety, or low energy, or insomnia, whatever. But then our increased doses just lead to more tolerance, more negative effects, more upping our dose. That's how we should be thinking about set and setting. Not just in the short term, but in the long term. Daily. Always changing. Unfortunately, this escalating tolerance stage is where the PSAs usually jump in, as if the endpoint is inevitable. But remember where we started. That's how we should be thinking about this. Not from the middle of the story, but from the beginning. We found a substance or a behavior or a friend that made us feel better, so we used it the next time we wanted to feel better. Our bodies responded, so we had to look anew for a substance, behavior, or a friend to make us feel better again. And most of us just upped our dose. Problem solved. Let's just keep going instead of acting like this is a one-way street. If the substance, the behavior, or the friend stops making us feel good, it's time to go back to lesson one, set and setting. It's time to pull back the reins and lower your dose, and hopefully to find something else to make you feel better, since the old tricks aren't working anymore. Ugh, right? I know. Responsible drug use sometimes sucks. But it turns out that it isn't always as hard as you might think. And there's a clue in the simple formula that was right in front of us all along. Fulfillment, identity, joy, connection. As we come back to normal life out of COVID lockdowns, and we're allowed to leave our houses and go to events and outings, those of us who struggle with addictions have had to find those fulfilling things that can supplement our substance use. And that's where today's episode really begins. Kratom is a plant leaf that's crushed or powdered and consumed for various medicinal reasons. Pain relief, anxiety relief, energy, depression, and even insomnia. When COVID hit, I'd already interviewed Dr. Grundman for an early episode about Kratom. You can check it out if you want back from 2020, episode 11. And I was already pretty familiar with Kratom, although I didn't really dig it all that much at first. See, my set and setting were different at the time. I was a lecturer at a new university, heading into the academic world, and I was 10 years out from a mainline heroin and cocaine addiction. I was still in a stage in my recovery where I was avoiding almost everything except beer and weed, which have both always been good to me. They've always worked well with my set, even as it's evolved and changed as I've aged. But COVID was dark. It was like feeling around in a black room and trying to locate things that feel familiar but they don't have the full color and focus of normal. We were staring at screens all day and trying to create some semblance of normalcy. It was a lot, and we had no idea when it was going to end. Now, to be fair, I was also one of the people who thrived in that solitude. I'm a bit of a loner, but I'm still a human, and despite my idiosyncrasies and my trauma, which tend to keep my close friends list very short, I still needed what everybody needs. Social connections, outings, new experiences, adventures. None of that was available, and a lot of the people who we all cared about were struggling with day-to-day -day life. 
I also had a lot of people in my life who were fully embracing conspiracy theories, up to and including the January 6th riot, which they didn't attend, but they wish they had to this day. And that was also a difficult thing for me to handle, because many of these were the same folks who I'd taken my cues from as a young man regarding how to establish and stick to my morals. It felt like the world was in a catastrophe, and the people who I usually turn to when things are going rough were losing their bearings on reality. And worse, they were blaming their God for it. So I started taking Kratom for a lot of reasons, and it helped a ton. So I took it every day. Two and a half years later, here we are. Which leads to today's first warning. Weigh your Kratom powder if you're going to use it. The huge bags that we order make it really easy to just dig in and take a big ol' scoop to the head without realizing how much you're actually consuming. I figured a spoonful was around 4 to 5 grams, and I estimated my daily dose at between 10 to 15 grams based on my faulty math. But a few weeks ago, I noticed the sleeplessness, which has always been a struggle for me since I stopped using heroin about 15 years ago, it showed back up, and upping my Kratom dose wasn't helping very much. What to do? Go back to rule number one, set and setting. My setting was changing. We were back to mostly normal. I was doing all sorts of things, from holding public presentations about drugs in front of groups, to prepping new class content. Maybe it was time to reduce or even halt my use of the drug. My set was also different. And here's the most important part of today's episode, the part the scary PSAs usually skip in favor of showing us a cheerleader who sells her dog for a hit of crack. When I started taking Kratom daily, I was losing one to four hours of sleep most nights and struggling with anxiety. Small doses worked wonders for both issues, and it was a cheap, natural drug, so I kept using it. Within a few weeks, my set was much more stable. I wasn't losing much sleep at all, my anxiety was low, and my production was through the roof. I finished my first book and busted out this podcast at one episode a week. But a year later, I realized I was again a bit anxious and losing some sleep once in a while, so I upped my dose, and my set once again returned to a nice, calm space. See where I'm going with this? So a few months ago, my set was three to four doses of Kratom per day, and at times, I was still losing a couple hours of sleep some nights. And that set was not one that could be medicated by adding more Kratom. So rule number one meant I had to do something different. Yikes. But what to do? I'd read the same blogs you probably have if you or someone you know takes Kratom, and most of them decry the physical dependency it causes. Many claim withdrawal is actually worse than heroin. My concern only grew when I started to weigh out my daily doses, somewhere between 20 to 35 grams per day, which is classified as a pretty heavy dose. I was concerned when I thought I was taking 10 to 15 grams a day, what if the blogs and the Reddit threads were true? My last month-long heroin detox in the county jail was decades back, and my last detox from methadone was more than 15 years ago. But they were both still as fresh in my mind as any traumatic experience, begging me to never go back to that place, warning me of the pain that awaited, and reminding me that the drug I was thinking about quitting was just a few feet away from where I was sitting. So I made a plan. And the first part of that plan was back to rule number one, set and setting. 
knowing myself like I do, I decided I wasn't going to stop using Kratom until I was ready, and that whatever attempts I made would be regulated, deliberate, and merciful. And around three weeks later, on a morning when I woke up feeling refreshed and strong, I took my first step. It wasn't perfect, and wasn't even enjoyable, and at times it was downright annoying. But here's what I can report from my experience. Waiting until I knew it was a good time was vital to my success. So was having an open definition of success. Anything from a reduction in my daily dose to outright quitting was on the table. But I hadn't really decided anything for sure except that I wanted to cut back. No deadlines or ultimatums allowed. I also had the support of my family, and I wasn't in a situation where I had to lie to anybody. Especially because Kratom is legal and cheap here. That lack of shame was also huge. I kept a dose close to me at all times, which is another trick that doesn't work for everybody, but that I've found works for me. I also used liberal amounts of other chemicals that are legal and that work well with me. Cannabis and alcohol, along with a bit of kava on day three is an experiment that I wasn't all that impressed with and didn't repeat. So what did it feel like? It felt like opioid withdrawal, but not the cold turkey I'd experienced in jail from heroin, and not the intense opioid-only withdrawal that comes from pharma products like Vicodin or Oxycontin, both of which I've detoxed from. In fact, I found myself repeatedly wishing that I'd heard of Kratom when I was trying to stop using heroin unsuccessfully in the early 2000s. It would have been a great buffer between heroin and cold sobriety. There were some physical aches, and that yawn that only seems to come with opioid withdrawal. And since Kratom slows digestion, there was some rebalancing there as well, along with some key breaks in my sleep as I readjusted. But each time it got to be too much, I took a small dose and I kept myself occupied. Which is one of the biggest tips that again points right back to set and setting. Set is what's going on in your body, right? So if you're struggling with, say, cocaine, you're firing up your body's evolutionary hunt circuits, and you're artificially creating the experience of seeking out new, enjoyable things that make you feel pumped. If you're taking an opioid, on the other hand, you're firing up your body's evolutionary feast circuits, and you're artificially creating the experience of enjoying the fruits of your labor or the joy of a successful hunt. That means if you're going to get rid of these substances that you've been using to create that experience, you should try to fill those desires with other things that you can plan ahead of time to create that same source of fulfillment. So I got to work on this episode, on a book I'm finishing up about prison films, on content for next semester, and on cleaning up around the house over and over. Plus, I'm talking directly to other people who are actively working through addictions and traumas. A great source of fulfillment for me. Best case, I planned on being mostly off Kratom in, say, two to three months. And I seriously wasn't rushing at all. I would have used it longer if that had been too uncomfortable. But I kept a log of how much I was using. I measured my daily doses to the tenth of a gram. And I slowly stepped them down from 6 to 7 grams 4 times a day, down to 4 grams 3 times a day, then down to 3 grams, then down to 2. Then I moved an early dose back and a late dose forward, eliminating yet another dose on day 10. And despite my belief that this was going to be a brutal experience, 
long and impossible feeling, it was unbelievably easy, at least compared to what I'd expected. I planned on two to three months, and I was completely off Kratom in less than three weeks. Seriously. And it's been more than a week now. I mentioned the power of success stories earlier, and that's also part of my narrative. Morgan Godwin, who's a good friend of mine, recently wrote an article in Filter Magazine that I've linked in the episode description, talking about how she quit using Kratom. And another good friend, who hasn't yet spoken publicly about it, so I won't mention their name, they also stopped using Kratom recently. And both of them describe their experience as the same sort of surprisingly easy thing compared to what they'd expected. So add my name to the list of people that you can look to if you're dreading the idea of reducing or stopping your use of a certain drug or behavior that you've successfully used for a long time and that you're worried about removing from your life. Set and setting change. There's nothing you can do about that. But you can recognize what it is you're looking for and how best to get there day by day. To be totally honest, I've tried to quit taking Kratom before although I was never all that serious about it. I'd usually get bored or yawny first thing in the morning and say, fuck it, it's a cheap drug with few side effects that never leaves me too intoxicated to function. For goodness sake, it's just a leaf. And then I'd mix a big ol' six-gram glass and chug it down. Mmm. But this time was different. This time I planned to stop using, and for a long time. My goal wasn't to do it tomorrow, That just happened one day when I woke up and it felt like the right time, and when my schedule allowed for a few down days, which, surprisingly, never actually showed up all the way. My goal wasn't to do it forever, because, to be honest, I really like drugs. They work really well. I just don't like tolerance, and I prefer to experience those early used buzzes, the ones that really work to medicate whatever it is we're all trying to medicate. I wanted to do the drugs without the drugs doing me, and that wasn't possible without paying close attention to both set and setting. In this case, my brain, my set, it knew that I didn't really want to stop, at least not forever. If I'd failed to acknowledge that piece of my identity, my success wouldn't have been as likely. Same with setting. I had to choose not to choose the day, for lack of a better term, because I wasn't entirely sure what was going to pop up when, nor when I would be in a good mental and emotional position to take on the project. But once I recognized those two things lining up, a vital piece of anyone's recovery from a substance or behavior they've struggled with, the rest sort of fell into place. Again, that's what set and setting should mean. Until we start to think about these two terms all the time, and in relationship to the processes of life, which are always changing, always in flux, we'll struggle with all sorts of things that worked really well when we first found them, but that stopped working as well because our bodies changed. Life is about change, growth, finding better ways. So as vulnerable as episodes like this one make me feel, I know there are people out there who feel trapped by the drugs that they're using and who also feel like they don't know what else they can do. And of course, there is no one-size-fits-all solution to addiction. That's not at all what I'm suggesting here. But mindfulness, paying attention to what's going on in your mind and your body, that's vital to any project of self-improvement. So take it slow, pick the right speed in the right time, and as Plato said, above all else, know thyself.
If you're struggling with addiction to a behavior or a substance that isn't working like it used to, you can stop or reduce your use. You just need to follow the pathways of those who came before us. Again, I totally recommend Morgan Godwin's article, which I've linked in the episode description. But use your own stories of support that speak to you. Follow the successful paths of those that came before us. We don't hate these drugs. In fact, most of the people in my circle who stopped using Kratom plan to start using it again sometime in the future. Some of them already do. And that plan was vital to our success at quitting. You can make logical decisions about your drug use and create an environment where you can succeed in altering your unhealthy behavioral patterns. Just be patient, plan accordingly, and love yourselves and the other addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.